<clears throat> this is from the True Dharma Eye Collection, Case 56, Guishan's Gift. The case, the koan. Guishan said to Yangshan, I have a lay student who gave me three rolls of silk to buy a temple bell in order to bestow happiness upon the people of the world. Yangshan said, when the lay student brought you the silk for the temple bell, what did you give him in return? Guishan hit the sitting platform three times and said, this was my offering. Yangshan said, if you have offered him that, how will it benefit him? Guishan again hit the platform three times and said, Why is it that you dislike this? Yangshan said, It's not that I dislike it. It's just that the gift belongs to everyone. And Guishan said, Since you know that it belongs to everyone, why did you want me to repay him? Yangshan said, I just wondered how you understood that since it belongs to everyone, you could still make it a gift. Guishan said, don't you see? The great master Bodhidharma who came to this land from India also brought a gift. We are always receiving gifts from others. Commentary, Daido's commentary. Giving and receiving are non-dual. Self and other are non-dual. When the way is surrendered to the way, you enter the way. In enlightenment, the way invariably comes through itself. The self gives itself for the sake of giving the self. It is purposeless. Other give the other for the sake of giving the other. There is no intention. Spiritual teachings and material wealth are also non-dual. The practices of giving as well as receiving should always be in accord with need and the imperative of time, place, position, and degree. To build a bridge, cook a meal, or make an offering is the practice of giving. Loving a mountain, eating a meal, or receiving an offering is the practice of receiving. When such actions are without design, both giver and receiver are united in a single, indivisible vastness. Recapping verse. The great earth innocently nurtures the flowers of spring. Birds trust freely the strength of the wind. All of this derives from the power of giving, as does the self coming into being. There's a koan in our collection that says, there are those who die of thirst while sitting beside a bucket of water. And there are those who die of starvation while sitting beside a bowl of rice. And this is the same as the line from Hakuin's Song of Zazen. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. 
both of these quotes are speaking about our underlying sense of discontentment, a poverty mind, sense of alienation, and our misguided search for what we believe will put it all to rest. What the Buddha realized and what all subsequent teachings and sutras try to shed light on is our intrinsic, untarnished, and perfectly complete true nature. But what is meant by true nature is quite different from the way we may understand it, since it's referring to the same true nature of everything. Like a common unifying thread that runs through the, sen the sentient and the insentient. And as such, it cannot be my true nature, which is the way we think and speak of it. I and true nature can only be one and the same. So where does the idea of possessiveness come from? Or maybe we should ask, what does this idea strengthen in us when we think of my true nature, my home, my stuff, my kids, my spouse, my car? Well, conventionally speaking, it does make sense to use Words like I, me, or mine. But if we examine our relationship with such words, we can easily see how attached we are to the meaning we have attributed to them beyond their linguistic functionality. And we may also be able to see how our usage of language maintains the illusion of duality or separation, which then leads to feelings of discontent and longing to discover what is missing in our lives. I think often what we discover through practice is that we create what we're trying to overcome. And I think sometimes also by trying to, too hard to practice to overcome what we think we need to overcome, we often end up strengthening it rather than breaking through. You know, the more we think and speak about ourselves in absolute and fixed terms, the more alienated we feel and the further away we get from what we call true nature. how much we speak about ourselves, how much we think about ourselves. How vested are we in that, we may call it creation, but we definitely do not see it as something created. We see it as fixed. And everything we speak of in relation to that, strengthen that sense of fixedness 
or that sense of something solid being there. And what happens is that we become blind to the fact that in essence, we are, we are what we are looking for. That doesn't mean that I am what I think I am. Because that's what I'm trying to break free off or trying to get away from. In essence, we are what we are looking for. And in our blindness, we act in ways that only disconnect and divide us as human beings. And to change this, we need to have the audacity to go against the grain and it does take audacity, it does take courage, it does take boldness to go against what I think I am or to go against what I think others may think about me. And against does not mean resistance. All it means in relation to practice is not to follow, not to obey. So to go against the grain of personal habits and societal norms and act in ways that may feel at first uncomfortable and even threatening to our existence. Which means that instead of resorting to defensive reactivities, we can work on remaining open and supportive. It's the antidote to the way we feel about ourselves or to what we create. Instead of rushing to fix judgments and conclusions, which again, we often do, about ourselves, other people, life, we can work on becoming more comfortable with not knowing and then learn to be more gentle, flexible, patient, loving. Instead of meeting diversity with suspicion and fear, we can learn to appreciate differences and then not let it blind us to the fact that we are essentially all the same. In other words, not let what the eye sees trap us, what the ear hears. Instead of rejecting, we can practice embracing. Instead of grasping and attaching, we can practice giving. Now it's a challenge, of course it's a challenge because <coughs> Because we don't want to do it all the time. We're doing it. We're all doing it. But we're doing it in a specific kind of way. We're doing it intermittently. Based on something. Right? It's always based on something. It's always about something or someone the way they behave or the way I think they should behave. 
the way life shows up, whether I agree or disagree, and all of it. You know, if you look at the standards for our behavior, it all comes down to not the, not the provisional me, but the fixed me. It's all about me, isn't it? And so the cultivation of giving is the first paramita the Buddha outlined as virtues to perfect through deliberate and intentional practice, known as dana paramita. And giving is the, the mother load of many spiritual traditions. And it's not just random that it happens to be this way. It messes up with our cherished identities. And it offers a direct way to deconstruct what we call the illusory self. But how do we understand or interpret giving? When we hear this word, what does the mind say about it? Because no, the way we understand and practice this paramita will either fortify or deconstruct the illusory self. I could be giving and strengthening what this is meant to deconstruct. I could also be sitting in Zazen and not use it well or not practice well. I could, be use, I could be sitting Zazen every day, the same time, and at the end of that sit, check off a box. I sat today. I'm great. I accomplished everything I set to, out to do. Right, I sit, then I go do this, then I eat well, I go to the gym, and I sleep well. I'm a good human being. Zazen is also a practice of giving. I think more so than we imagine. You know, when we fold our legs together and we sit, it is a moment, that moment of starting or beginning the, the Zazen is a moment of relinquishing. It needs to be a moment of completely, completely letting go. Again, letting go is not what we think it is. Letting go is giving ourselves fully. Completely giving ourselves to the practice. And it includes everything. It also includes thoughts about I don't feel like sitting or look at me, I'm sitting very well. All of it, we want to give. Empty out completely. And empty out through the practice of giving. And if we practice this way, we are training ourselves. We are training to do something or to be in a... In a, in a 
specific kind of way, which is very different in the way we are. And that that training can carry over to the day, our work, at home, on the road. But conventionally, the word the words giving, receiving, and that which is being given in our mind represent fixed positions. And it we almost automatically assign meaning to each of these positions. Since our conceptual minds paints the giver, the gift, and the receiver with preconceived ideas. We're not interacting in when, when there is giving going on. We're not interacting with it being fully present. We're interacting with it with a bunch of ideas that we bring into that moment or that interaction. So we're not flowing when there is giving. And there is always giving. But the way of thinking perpetuates expectations, disappointments, and it feeds a contractual relationship between human beings, which bears weight on how people interact with each other. But not only that, it's just a contractual relationship. It's not just a contractual relationship. It actually serves very well to fortify who I think I am and who I think I'm not. And it fortifies who I think you are and or who you're not in my eyes. So it does serve a purpose. It's also good for the economy, isn't it? It sells well. You know, we stop at the store to buy something, right? Buy a cup of coffee on the go. We get the coffee, we pay, we say thank you, and we walk away. And we think, well, what do we think about this? Right? It's a moment in time, right? It's a moment of interaction between two human beings. There is giving and receiving. But how do I see the person on the other side of the counter? How do I see myself on this side of the counter? And how do I see the hand serving that particular cup of coffee? Because in most cases, all of it is just an automatic moment in time that in most situations we don't give much attention to. <clears throat> I don't, I don't, I just paid my few bucks. I got what I needed. What else is there? It's a small example, but this is often how we interact with each other. So we have the small sphere of people that we say we like, and whether it's family and friends, that we interact with them differently. But then everybody else, well, you know, 
They're serving a purpose. Oh, I serve a purpose in their lives. That's it. So why should I do more than just hand over my few bucks? This is a moment. This example is a moment of, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to truly give ourselves, but it's also an opportunity to break free from something, to find a little bit more liberation from that which we claim we want to free ourselves from. But it already has a label, right? Before we even stop and go inside the store, there's already a very fixed label about this particular kind of interaction. So, well, there's nothing there for me. It happens so often that we don't even re recognize the missed opportunity to give and receive. Or giving and receiving that cannot be more than just what's going on at that moment. And it's true that we live in a society that encourages commodity-based interactions. But as, as spiritual practitioners, we bear the responsibility to not go along with the conventional way of being. That's why we say to go against the grain. And we have the responsibility to offer, or we bear the responsibility to offer ourselves to direct interactions, even during brief encounters, all the time. So we give ourselves to Zazen so we can give ourselves to everything. Freely, without conditions. You know, whether we believe it or not, we always permeate energy in all directions. Which means that the, our, the, our state of being and our actions will have immediate and residual effect. So when we look at it, understand it's a missed opportunity. It's not that we missed the opportunity because we did something. So we used the opportunity in one way or another and we did permeate in specific kind of way. So we did share. So when I go into the store and I give my few bucks and I get what I wanted and I say goodbye and I leave, I did give something. And what I gave was not or may not have been open heart. So at that moment, instead of contributing to a shift between differences to unity, maybe I just strengthened differences without even paying attention to that, without giving it much weight. For thought. 
And it happens all the time when we interact with each other. So how do we respond to energy and behavior of other people? We pick up on that. Do we put up a wall if we don't like it? How do we meet our own triggers when we get triggered by other people? Does that become the foundation of another wall or to fortify a wall, an existing wall? Do we meet a wall with a wall? Do we, do we respond to rejection with rejection? People often speak about that, that they are, when they are in company of somebody who is maybe difficult to deal with, maybe uh, quickly to be triggered, quick to be triggered, or anger, they shut down, they put up a wall. And when we act this way, what, what are we saying? What are we doing? Right? We have, again, we are do, always doing something. We're always giving and receiving. So when somebody is giving anger and we put up a wall, what happens? Or when somebody is expressing anger and we don't put up a wall, and we respond with kindness and openness rather than think about myself. I don't like this. Or when you act this way, I feel that way. It's all, again, it's all about me. I don't think about you. Maybe, well, I don't know what's going on with you, but maybe, maybe you're going through something. Maybe offering you my heart will help. Maybe not, but we don't know. But offering a wall will definitely not be helpful. Right? Not be helpful to you or to me. So what about taking down the wall? What about opening up? What about taking a chance? What about being vulnerable or willing to be vulnerable? But of course, being vulnerable means that we may get hurt. And we do get hurt. But that's not the problem. I think the problem is that we are vested in protecting something. That's why we don't give fully all the time. We are protecting something and we think that that thing we are protecting has limited capacity, limited resources. I'm not going to give to everyone. I'm just going to give to those who I decided that are part of my circle of friends or family or whatever that I'm willing to give to. But a bodhisattva in training, as we are, a bodhisattva does not get caught up in that or practices not getting caught up in that. A bodhisattva does not go along with automatic impulses. A bodhisattva 
takes the initiative to step out of the boundaries of convention and offer others what they need rather than what they want or what I want. How do I know what others need? Well, I have to stay open. I have to pay attention. I have to be willing to not go along with judgment. I have to be willing to not think so much about myself. Because when the walls come down, we realize that this act of going to buy something from a vendor actually becomes a vehicle for sharing our hearts with one another. So what happens is the reason for the interaction becomes secondary to the opportunity to share our heart with another. Which is opposite of the way we see it. I don't have time to share my heart here. I'm here to get something. Thank you. I got to rush back to whatever I was doing. Isn't that squandering? You can adjust position. Is it not squandering? Is it using everything we've got? And you know, the other thing is, what are we saving it for anyway? Right? We're saving our heart for what? When do we give it all? Right? It's like having nice clothes in the closet, and I, I don't want to wear them. I want to wear them special occasion. Only special occasion. This is a special occasion. And it may be the last special occasion. We don't know. I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that my, my kiddo teacher passed away. He's 84 years old. And uh, the last time I, I saw him was at a, a mini seminar he taught in the city. And, um, you know, so a teacher, you call up people for demonstration during class and then people do that technique as you know, as you heard many times. So, as it was, I happened to be the last person he actually in, called up to take Ukemi to throw. Of course, I didn't know that, right? I got up, I attacked, he threw me a few times, and that was that. I didn't know it's going to be the last time I'm going to see him or interact with him or share energy with? How could I have known? But every moment could be the last opportunity. Meaning every moment we interact with another human being could be the last moment we interact with another human being. This is a fact and we, we, we are so blind to that. I was like, well, yeah, but there'll be many other moments. So I'm, I'm going to reserve my heart 
and not open up fully and not give myself fully. I got too much going on in my head right now. And all that too much going on in my head is, is always me thinking about me. What do I need? What do I want? Am I getting what I need? And, and think, the thing is, when we do open up, we realize that we are getting so much more than what we think we could even imagine or need, right? It's right there. This is what we need. This is what we need. We don't need to buy another thing. We need this nutrient, this nutrient that is in the heart of another this is what we need, this is what the other needs. If we're willing to give fully. And this is how the self awakens to itself. In one of the sermons, the sermons the Buddha spoke about sharing. And he said, if beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the, the stain of meagerness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared. Even if there were someone to receive their gift, if there is some, sorry, if there is someone to receive their gift. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given. The stain of meagerness overcomes their minds. The stain of meagerness overcomes their minds. And this is, this is often how we are. We become so possessive. And we think that we gain something, but we actually lose so much by being the way we are, by being so stingy. And it's not stingy with stuff as much as stingy with our being. You know, I think maybe often we're willing to give stuff or it's easier to give stuff than to give ourselves. But to give ourselves, what we're talking about is when we are in the company of other people, to not get caught up in, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I need something, I didn't get enough sleep last night, I am cranky, I'm whatever, or I'm afraid of something. All this is going on in the head, but then here's an opportunity for me to release this grip and give myself fully to that. Because if I don't give myself fully to you, I am giving myself to those thoughts and emotions. I'm always giving. It's not a choice. But by giving to you, I'm freeing myself from myself. Phenomenal. It's very powerful. So when we are interacting with another human being, 
Of course, the mind has a lot to say in the background about this human being, about, okay, you know, why is she or he talking so much or whatever, right? That's what the mind is saying and that's where the attention goes. But we have to gently again and again and again, million times, move it back to, I'm here for you. I am here for you. Period. And not because we are Buddhist practitioners. Because we understand that this is an opportunity to strengthen something and to weaken something. Now when we take precepts, we vow to give freely and not to be withholding, which is not a vow to be a good and generous person. It only means to recognize the inner forces that create the imagined barrier between self and other and to constantly work on quelling these forces. And generosity is an essential aspect of the awakening process as it propels us forward on the path of realization and it also flows out of realization. So by giving, I'm, exp I'm not waiting for realization, I'm expressing realization. I'm practicing awakening by fully and completely, unconditionally giving myself to you, whoever the you may happen to be. And also there's a lot of joy that comes from, well, we don't know that until we do it, or as long as we are stingy, we don't think that there is much joy in sharing with others. But when we do that, there is this something in the heart that just flowers. We thrive when we act this way. I think we, we know what it feels like when we are in the presence of somebody who acts this way. We drink it up. Why? And if we do feel this and we acknowledge that, then what are we learning about? Well, yeah, but this guy is, doesn't have my problems, or this person, right? They, they seem free. I'm stuck, so I'm, I'm free to be stingy. You are, well, you're beyond that, so you can give. Oh, I don't have much to give. Poverty mind. But giving is not in question. We give stinginess to another by being stingy. The teacher in this case is Guisha, a 9th century Chinese Zen master who was a disciple of Pai Chang. Guisha, along with his disciple Yang Shan, co-founded one of the five schools of Zen, named after the two names, Gui Yang school. And the Zen line lasted only five generations, as it's told. But through multiple recorded sayings and dialogues, it influenced many Zen masters and contributed to the development of the Zen tradition in China. In this chapter on the Guiyang school, 
John C.H. Wu writes, the style of the house of Guiyang has a charm of its own. It is not as deep and sharp-edged as the house of Rinzai and Yunmen, nor as close-knit and resourceful as the house of Soto, nor as speculative and broad as the house of Fayan. But it has a greater depth than the others. So that's his description of the school. In this particular dialogue from, this, from today's koan, Guishan said to Yang Shan, the student, I have a lay student who gave me three rolls of silk to buy a temple bell in order to bestow happiness upon the people of the world. So back in those days, it was customary for Buddhist followers to help sustain monasteries by providing monetary contributions or any goods that they were able to give based on their ability. So the practice of the Dharma can continue and, as Guishan says, to bestow happiness upon the people of the world. Now, the word happiness may be better understood as inner contentment or a state of being at ease or at peace. But what is it that bestows inner contentment? Can one bestow this on another? Does one have it and another doesn't? When we turn towards the Dharma, realize it through experience and align with it, it is by itself an endless source of contentment. But no person or an institution can claim ownership on the Dharma. And no one can receive it from another. So how do we make it a gift? And this is the question raised in this koan, asking us to examine our understanding of true giving. So Yangshan said, when the lay student brought you the silk for the temple bell, what did you give him in return? Now, we have to keep in mind that this is, he wasn't questioning his teacher as much as turning the Dharma wheel. Guishan hit the sitting platform three times and says, this was my offering. This is my offering, always. Whether I realize it or not, this is my offering. I am the offering. Everything we are surrounded by is an offering. Yangcha said, well, if you offer them that, how will it benefit him? And he, what, the way he's talking about it is exactly the way our minds think about it. Right? Everything is reciprocal or not. And if it's not, it's going to be bothersome. It should be reciprocal. I'm giving time. I'm giving my efforts. What am I getting in return? Right? Wishan again hit the platform three times and says, why is it that you dislike this? And this is a question for us. Why are we rejecting this? Why are we quantifying this, right? Because sometimes we don't reject it. Sometimes we embrace it or become attached to it. Why are we so intermittent 
with this preciousness. Yangshan said, it's not that I dislike it, it's just that the gift belongs to everyone. Well, Guishan said, well, since you know it belongs to everyone, why did you want me to repay him? The shift, we have to constantly shift from the many to the one and then go back to the many so we don't get lost in the conventional reality. Yeah, I give you this, you give me that, but we're all one. In one, giving, receiving, and the gift are, not, are all the same. Everything is one. Then we are free to give and receive. So Guishan said, since you know that it belongs to everyone, why did you want me to repay him? And Yangshan said, I just wondered how you understood that since it belongs to everyone, you could still make it a gift. If we, when we understand that it belongs to everyone, it is essentially everyone, then we, we understand that a blade of grass is a precious gift. A hug, a smile, opening the heart. turning towards another way. What isn't a gift? What isn't an expression of the Dharma? The Dharma includes all things, animate or inanimate, whether valued or despised, regardless of monetary or social value we attached to it or a label. So first we, we may want to contemplate if we actually realize all things as the all-encompassing Dharma. And do we view everything as a gift? And then Yangshan, Guishan said, actually, don't you see the great master Bodhidharma who came to this land from India also brought a gift. We are always receiving gifts from others. And the footnote says, Heaven is filled with it, earth is covered by it. The hand that gives is also the hand that receives. So if I'm stingy, I'm giving stinginess and I'm receiving stinginess. If I'm generous, not generous with this or whatever this is, just being generous then that's what I receive. The Dharma is boundless. And so on an essential level, every encounter with another being is an act of giving and receiving the Dharma. And at the same time, it's also an act of affirming our own boundless true nature. Not ours possessive. Ours who we are. I'm going to finish with this. Uh, this is from a Taoist text from 7th century. This quote, it says, A sea does not reject water and therefore is able to bring about its vastness. A mountain does not reject soil and therefore can bring about its height. An enlightened person does not despise ordinary people and therefore can bring about a large populace. 
you need to realize that a sea not rejecting water is its being in sympathy with water. Further, you need to realize that the water has the complete virtue of not refusing the sea. For that reason, it is, it is possible for waters to come together and form a sea and for earth to pile up to form a mountain. And you certainly know for yourself that because one sea does not reject another sea, it forms an ocean, which is something much bigger. And because one mountain does not reject another mountain, it forms a large mountain, which is something much higher. And because an enlightened person does not despise ordinary people, she creates a large populace. This is why a Bodhisattva vowed to practice manifesting sympathy. And to do so, they need to face all things with a gentle demeanor. Dogen said, there are fools who look upon themselves as if they were someone else. And there are wise people who regard others as themselves. I think it sums it up well. Thank you.